In this episode of The Midwife's Cauldron, I speak with Rachel about late, preterm and early term infants. These are the babies who have flown under the radar for far too long and are often the babies who struggle the most to get going with breastfeeding. Come with us as we take a look at the current research, plans for feeding and what mothers are saying who have had babies born just that bit too early. We discuss how many babies are born late preterm and why the numbers are growing how late preterm infants are different neurologically and physically to full-term babies. What complications are more likely to be seen in this population? And the current challenges within the maternity system when supporting mothers with late preterm infants. We also look at whether there is a basic plan which can be generalised for most or all late preterm infants. And what about those babies born 37 weeks to 38 plus 6 days? Do they have higher needs too? And of course, we look at the barriers to continuation of breastfeeding from the mother's point of view. So, you know what to do. Start the car, sip on that gorgeous coffee of yours, or put the leash on the dog and come with us in this episode of The Midwives Cauldron. I'm Katie James, and this is the Midwives Cauldron Podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Dr. Rachel Reed. Listen in as we hubble, bubble, toil and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood, midwifery, birth and lactation. So go on, subscribe now, and hear us on your favorite podcast host. But just a sec, before we start on this epic episode, if you love the show and want more from Rachel and me, then head on over to our websites and check out all the courses, books, collectives a go-go. You'll find all the details and occasional discount deals on the old Instagram at The Midwife's Cauldron or, of course, in the show notes below. And if you really, really love the show please consider two things, a single or a monthly donation over on Patreon or even buy me a coffee. And remember that review you leave on your podcast host really makes a difference in who listens in. Thank you for your support. We just love having you bubbling away with us. Let's do late preterm infants, LPIs. LPIs. <laughs> in case I don't want okay. I'll put it in brackets so you can understand what it was. You know how much I love abbreviations and acronyms? Yeah. At least it's not an acronym. Honestly, I think I'm allergic to acronyms. Well, oh. Australia loves an acronym. Oh, I can't bear it. All right. So we're going to talk we say about late term. Well, Hello. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome to the BBC. My name's Katie James, and with me in the studio today is. That's when you say your name. Do I? No, you're not meant to introduce me. No, I am introducing you, and then you say your own name when you carry on. Why? Because you've forgotten. 
Yes. That's what I would assume. If, if a presenter did that, I would assume they've forgotten. And with me today is. is Dr. Rachel Reed. And tonight's stories, we're going to be discussing late LPIs. LPIs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So late preterm. How many babies are actually late preterm and what is it? Well, it's actually about 75% of all preterm births are late preterm births. And so when we're, that definition is of gestational age. So like the weeks of pregnancy from 34 weeks till about 36 plus six. So three quarters of all babies born before 37 weeks will be in this late preterm category. And actually, this is the fastest growing cohort of preterm infants. Is that because we're inducing them all? Well, it's because we are increasing the use of reproductive technologies, IVF pregnancies. We have mm-hmm. a growing maternal age. We have more twin pregnancies. We have and more all of these higher risk. Mean the baby's more likely to come out preterm. Yes, because we're having more obstetric surveillance and more interventions. And we are inducing women much more than we were. And we're inducing them earlier in some Mm. cases. And we're probably having more because we've got rising rates of assisted reproduction. Assisted reproduction outside of other factors, as in increased surveillance or intervention, increases the chance of a preterm labor. And it increases the chance of twins. They certainly yes. used to put like put a whole load in and hope that someone's stuck. And now they've realized that that's not a good idea because you end up with like women having five babies. Yes, but they still exactly. regularly put two in. So you then have twins. So then Correct. you're more likely to have a preterm birth. And most twins are born around 36 weeks. But that's induction though, because twins do yes. gestate longer if you yes. leave women yes. alone. But it doesn't mean that they're not but the stats are that most of them are born around 36 weeks. Whether needed to or not, it's not the point, but they are. And this is why it's increasing in the amount of late preterm infants we're seeing, particularly at this later stage, 35 plus, 36 plus. And I think the perception is, though, that like a 36-week baby looks fine. Yes. Fully full. They do okay generally. And they're put on the maternity ward and this is why i need to talk about it because mm, because they haven't done that that bit of so they ha- they haven't signaled that they are ready to be born like they yeah. do with a term baby so you haven't had all that internal maturation of their systems but they look like a small baby so what's the what are the common challenges from a breastfeeding perspective so really they have a huge amount of challenges which like you've just mentioned in terms of they are not they're not ready to be born so the first one is or what I should say is the greatest challenge is feeding is breastfeeding and that's obviously why I'm talking about this however there are other challenges that link in to why breastfeeding is Mm. such a problem and one of them is that like you say they are not fully developed in terms of their their the systems the organ systems but Predominantly as well, a third of the brain growth is happening from 32 weeks to 40 weeks gestation. Um, And also what we're seeing in that time point is fivefold increase in white matter. And at 
in the last 10 weeks of gestation, the brain undergoes a fourfold increase in gray matter. So both parts of the brain are massively developing at this last phase in pregnancy. And so if we have this immature brainstem, what it affects is actually how the baby breathes, how the baby's um, controls mm. its laryngeal reflexes, and also like breathing and sleep yeah. mechanisms. So 10% of these late preterm infants actually have sleep, severe apnea of prematurity. So they have breathing problems because of their prematurity. And we're aware of that. However, what that means is that you've got this immature brain that not only affects breathing, which means that they're much more likely to be taken away from the mother, separated and taken to the neonatal unit. And that might be for 12 hours. It might be for 36 hours. However, it is a separation and it impacts in terms of that skin to skin, Mm. the bonding and all of those regulatory and reflexes that normally, you know, are undergoing in those first important three golden hours and beyond. But also when we look at the immaturity of them neurologically and physically a bit further, and we look at how it impacts, like they really do have these immature sucking and swallowing reflexes and they don't have, you know, a huge mouth. They're kind of little. And so they haven't got these massive fat reserves either. They're often under 2.5 kilos. They might just tip the scale where they're over. And that's really the tricky point because everyone's like, oh, they're over 2.5 kilos. They're 36 plus two weeks. Jobs are good and no worries. However, this baby's still got problems with latching at the breast because of these, what we call buckle pads, which are like, I'm squeezing my cheeks here. Which are like oh, those are the bits that everyone's getting removed. No, that's the ties. No, no, the buccal, the bu- buccal ties, the buccal pads. No, listen, <laughs> the buccal pads. What? All the celebrities are getting them removed. Oh, I thought we were still talking about babies, <laughs> not about celebrities. I'm sorry, that was sorry. Good. What? This is not the right podcast. I'm sorry, was that on the one which I interviewed, introduced you to at the beginning and you thought you were doing that one tonight? Today, tonight with uh, Rachel Reed. Celebrities are removing buckle fat pads. Where are they putting them? Well, just what, removing so you them. look sort of skeletal. So you, have cheek, so you have cheekbones. Oh, my God. Are you serious? I am serious. <laughs> so off the planet. Go and Google it. I am this. Googling it. Can we just get back on topic? For God's sake. I can't. Right, sorry. Didn't right, celebrities sorry. We used to we put were... bomb fat in their face to get cheekbones? Yes, yeah, so you put. Yeah, so you put filler into the cheekbones, but you take out the buccal oh, pad or buccal pad. So you look like a skeleton, else. but with really high cheekbones. No, that, well, I don't think you're aiming to look like <laughs> a skeleton. That might end up happening, especially when you get older and all the fat goes off your face. Anyway, but it, that gives you a, a lumpy round face. I don't know. Well, you shouldn't talk about things you don't know about, should you? It's not what this podcast this podcast. Right, anyway, back to buccal pads and so she pre- who took us off topic. Full not not full term, in late preterm, LPIs. LPIs. Right. So they have a difficulty in maintaining a latch. So we often will see with these babies that they will go on to the breast, they'll start to suck, and then they kind of fall off. They go on, start to suck, fall off, or they become sleepy. And this is because they have also this intraoral vacuum is difficult to maintain because of the buckle fat pads they're poorly sustained in terms of their energy levels 
like they have difficulty actually signaling finger cues, feeding cues. So these are the classic <laughs> babies that I would see on the ward. They're wrapped up, like I always say, like a little burrito, put in the box next door. And these are the good babies. Oh, these babies. babies are so good. You never hear a peep because they're not going oh, to see. And then they turn orange. And then they turn orange. These are like the tango <laughs> babies that you go and see at home. Tango burritos. Tango burritos. Oh, ooh, what a lovely combination. So if we compare it to a healthy term infant, they have this really well-developed sleep-weight cycle from birth. And so what this allows for is these periods of alertness, like quite alert, and then deep sleep within the first 36 hours. So healthy term infants wake when they're hungry and they actually mm. remain alert during feeds. And you really see at the end of the feed them starting to kind of sleep. That arm kind of relaxes and drops and goes down. That's a really good sign that they've kind of had a good feed. Um, and then they transition back into that deep sleep cycle. And these sleep cycles just are a cyclical event that carries on. But they are alert enough to say, I'm hungry. I'm going to attach onto the breast. I'm going to maintain that attachment. I'm going to maintain vacuum. I'm going to feed. But the LPIs, the late preterm infants, have mm -hmm. more difficulty actually achieving a deep sleep. And therefore, they lack sufficient rest to remain alert for the feed. But also that's compounded by these other factors that they are susceptible to. So like temperature instability. So they have to really struggle mm. to regulate their temperature. That uses up a lot of energy. They're having much more higher chance of respiratory distress. So they're trying to get their system under control. They're more likely to have hypoglycemia, low blood sugars. Naturally, if your body's using all its resources and they don't have these massive fat stores like, you know, a three and a half kilo term baby. And so then they're much more likely to have jaundice and sepsis. And so they have this decreased state of arousal and poor endurance at the breast. So and the other thing that can happen is they can start out with quite good tone but it can quickly decrease. So they can attach to the breast and then their muscle tone just kind of, they kind of go floppy like a rag doll. So with these babies, you actually can see them attach on the breast. And instead of like a full-term baby that kind of keeps its hands in a, like a fist around its mouth often, and then towards mm, the very like end of the feed, it like, ugh, like really relaxes and the arm just kind of falls down what you're seeing within a few seconds or a few minutes is that kind of limpness from these late pretermers. Mm. So decreased stamina, fatigue, they're not actually transferring milk out of the breast well enough. And that's a real concern because they might actually hang out at the breast for 20 minutes. And so, you know, most new mothers think, well, they've had a breastfeed. They've been there for 20 minutes and then they kind of properly fall off. And then, of course, they're the good baby because then they sleep for four hours or five hours or six mm -hmm. hours if no one's gone in to wake them up. So these babies really struggle and we're putting them on the ward. And so can it, so the system doesn't recognize that or is there challenges with then supporting that? I mean, I'm just trying to think back to postnatal wards you would be quite pleased if there was a baby just having lots of sleeps <laughs> you would 
<laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, my God. Everybody would be here. That, that's... <laughs> I think the problem is, I mean, one of the major problems is that we, of course, don't want to separate mother and infant at all. We want them to be rooming in. And either you've got a system which automatically takes babies into the special care baby nursery and monitors them because they are late pretermers. So we're separating them and causing problems with breastfeeding that way and bonding and connection. Or you've got these babies on a maternity ward that is very understaffed, extremely busy. And there isn't, in most cases that I'm aware of, an actual guideline specific for late preterm infants and so what we're doing is we're bunking them all in with the healthy term newborn guideline on feeding expectations and Mm. actually these babies are at incredibly high risk of um just falling off the wagon basically and what we're also doing is we're discharging them home so soon we're giving very little care and support and also we're not really teaching our midwives or our student midwives specifically about special care infants. And the thing is, when you go into a NICU environment and you talk with the, you know, so NICUs or neonatal intensive care units can be kind of split up into the absolute intensive care where you will have 23 weekers, 27 weekers, babies who are incredibly unwell. Then you get the kind of moderate unwell. And then you get the kind of what is often called the fattening farm because They're just Mm. there to be fed. And this is often seen in terms Mm. of a hierarchy of neonatal knowledge of you're a new neonatal nurse. You're going to start in the fattening farm and you just want to get food into Mm. them. And often these babies might have a nasogastric tube. Maybe they're just needing, you know, to be kind of force fed in a way with a bottle because it drips really quickly. And then they can kind of just I mean, all they can do is swallow or spit it out. And. So there is also a lack of education about how important the fattening farm time is, because this is the establishment of breastfeeding. But it's really not seen as a a glorified area to work in or that actually the support you give here is just as important as the support you're giving to parents when their baby is severely unwell, because we have 75 percent of infants who are going to be in this kind of less intensive special care nursery needing some guidance with feeding some respiratory support maybe some glucose as well but they're not being given the feeding support because we're not even training neonatal nurses on breastfeeding or lactation Mm. so you've got midwives who are overworked over everything and you've got these babies who appear to be good and yet they are Mm. at an increased rate of contract contracting not contracting an increase rate of being jaundiced 54 percent will have jaundice Mm. and we know that jaundice will make the baby even sleepier will impact the breastfeeding even more but then they're often sent like but then they're often like people don't stay on the postnatal order for very long now do they so won't these babies, if they look like they're feeding well, if they are a certain weight, because it seems to be around the weight, isn't it, that we intervene or not intervene, that there's a real risk that they're going to go home and then they'll get jaundice, et cetera, there out in the community. These babies are much more likely to be readmitted. And then you've got that kind of readmitted cascade of intervention. So like the feeding cascade of intervention, which is... Mm, 
your baby's not breastfeeding well. Mm, you don't have enough milk. We need to get milk in quickly. Let's put it in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Let's quickly express you in this very stressful situation. Oh, you've only got six mils. Oh, your milk hasn't really come in. So we're going to use formula. Oh, look, the baby just took 30 mils of formula really easily. And and I actually want to talk about this, not just in terms of what is going on, but in terms of some of the research and there's not a lot, but has really looked at the mother's experiences of this because it's incredibly distressing. And it's a long haul process. The thing is, is that we think that, say the baby's born at 36 weeks, it's often said that once they hit kind of term age, 38 weeks, 39 weeks, they'll be back on track. They're not. These babies take six to eight weeks often or maybe even a bit longer to actually really get going with breastfeeding. And that's a huge weight. If you're a first time mom Mm. and you're not given the information about this, you're giving nothing prior or you're given the general bog standard breastfeeding two hour class and you give birth to a baby at 35 plus six days, you're sent home. They tend to keep these mums and babies in for an extra day. Can't guarantee that. So they might be in 48 hours her milk's probably not come in. Mm. They've probably had a cesarean, which also adds and compounds to the fact that she's probably going to have a delay in when she notices the milk come in or secretory activation occur. Um, and these babies then go home and they might even be vigorous for the first 24 hours. Then they're sent home. They're either sent home with a convoluted plan or they are um, sent home with no plan, or they're told to express and bottle feed so we can monitor milk volumes. Mm. So it's a really complex challenge, to be honest. We'll be right back. I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mom, dad, parent, or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength, and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear-jerking, fist-pumping, and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially, and physically. Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the Global Lactation Clinic. Whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey, I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour, your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together. So do we know what the breastfeeding rates are like compared to term babies? Yeah. The odds of breastfeeding beyond four weeks or to the recommended six months of exclusive breastfeeding 
appears to be significantly less than term infants. But also what is very interesting is it's less than infants who are born under 34 weeks of gestation. So, really? Yes. And so this is why it's important to kind of take this apart and why these babies are really, these are the Cinderella of the Cinderella of the Cinderella babies. Mm. Um, So we've got term infants that come out alert and awake. And of course, there are challenges with Mm -hmm. breastfeeding. I don't need to say that. But they're more likely to get through. Then you've got preterm infants who are probably not even feeding on the breast. They're having nasogastric or tube feeds, or they're having trial breastfeeds. However, they are within the neonatal unit for longer periods of time. They're probably being seen maybe by a lactation consultant. They are there Mm -hmm. for maybe a week. They're there for maybe a month, six weeks. And so they're actually having input about establishing milk supply all the while that their baby is being fed by tube. They're being encouraged to express and possibly not enough, but they're having some input. And so these babies are then having trial breastfeeds, time to breastfeed in the fattening farm. It could be better. We could be doing a better job. However, preterm, the late preterm infants are not having any of this support. Mm. So they really struggle. And what about infants born? Because there's also the, now let me get this right, not the late preterm, but the early term. So would that be the babies who are 37 to kind of 38 weeks? Yeah. This is only, this has kind of been recognized since about 2015, 2016, uh, Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine protocol came out for early or late preterms and early terms. There was the first time it was included. It's protocol number 10 from 2016. And they talked about the early terms, which is 37 to 38 plus six. Previous, Mm. we have always said term is 37 to like 42 weeks, kind of. These babies totally fine. However, these early term babies are also at risk of behaving in a similar manner. They also haven't quite had those last two, three weeks of brain development. Mm -hmm. And so they can, and they also don't have as much fat laid down. They have the potential to really fall off the peg day three. Those are classic walk in Fanta orange, jaundice baby at three days postpartum. You knock on the door to do a home visit. And they and you say, how are you? And you see this kind of couple that are looking really fresh faced and like they've had good sleep. And you think, <laughs> oh, no, oh, no. And they go, oh, it's going so well. She's so good. And then you walk in and it's like there's some kind of radioactive material glowing <laughs> from the baby. And you're like, when did she last feed? Oh, I think it was. He got tangled. <laughs> Oh, okay. Right. How many wheeze and poos? Oh, not many poos. Hmm. Okay. So these babies are now have been written into the guideline to say we need to watch them. So more work for midwives. But that's interesting because because we're now inducing. So I think now the main reason for induction is not post-term anymore or post-dates mm. rather. 
that there are other reasons that have overtaken that. So there are more and more babies who are being induced at 39 yes. weeks. All you need is, you know, we don't know, 39 weeks, a few days, either side. You we don't, don't know. It's exact. A lot of those babies are actually going to be 38 weeks, yeah. aren't they? Or even totally. less. Totally. That is mm. a major problem. All right. So what we're saying is there's a big proportion of babies who are going to be LPIs. Is there a general plan? Like, Because we're going to need to do... We're going to need to support these babies and their parents. Is there a plan? Or is there? Yeah, there is a plan. And it, it should be that there is a guideline in every hospital for these infants, but it's not there yet. I mean, it was written in 2016. You can kind of go to the ABM protocol and just make your own template. And it's got all the research there and it's pretty darn good. And it includes early term babies as well. There's 37 Plus. Are you going to put a link in the show notes? I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Of course I will. <laughs> Just check in. But I mean, it's the basics. It's always going to be the same. Think about the baby. Yeah. Think about the breasts. Think about the volumes. So ideally, initiate breastfeeding within the first hour. But that's not always possible. Like sometimes they're whisked away for resuscitation. Getting skin to skin started yeah. or back on track because they may not have had it. Cesarean section, respiratory distress, probably not going to have skin to skin. So get it going as soon as possible. Take that mom in her bed to the special care unit or bring, if the baby is there, or bring the baby to her and get skin to skin as soon as possible in the recovery room. There's often a reluctance to do that if the baby's settled, isn't it? They go, well, look, the baby's all wrapped up like a burrito and settled. So let's not disturb the baby. Don't get me started. And then, you know, where I did work once where they would be suturing the the scar and then they would take the, the partner up with the baby wrapped like a burrito and put them in the kind of little nursery area. It was kind of a resource area on the postnatal ward and then all the partners would always be on their phone because they didn't know what to do they'd just be like texting everyone the baby's Mm. born but the baby was lying asleep and then no one's having skin to skin and I walk in there Mm. as the lactation consultant on the ward and go oh would you like to would you like to get naked um and me to get your baby (laughs) naked and while your partner's in theater I mean, that can come with its own things as well. I will warn about that because if that has not been discussed between birth partners or family members and it was an emergency cesarean section and skin to skin might be done for the first time with the birth partner or mother-in-law, there are a lot of women who can feel incredibly disappointed, angry, upset that it wasn't that permission wasn't given to them. So again, that's also an important thing to be discussing antenatally. I mean, mm-hmm. one third of births in hospital will end up with a cesarean section. So discuss that. Like, is it important that your baby has skin to skin contact because of all the benefits in terms of temperature stability, glucose stability, bonding, nurturing, or is it actually please I need to be the first person to touch my baby. And in that case, then it's a case of keeping the baby in the bloody theater and not removing them on another floor. Well, exactly. Why can't the baby just be skin to skin? Oh, you don't know, even ask. It's, don't get I know. I worked in a hospital where that was just standard. Baby comes out, goes skin to skin with mom in theater, stays skin to skin with mom in recovery, all the way to the yes. postnatal ward. Yes. This was like a decade, yes. like how many years ago? Me too. A long time ago. 
it's not rocket science. And then when I came to Australia, it was like, you can't do that if you want to do that. Because I said, well, how can I change this? I had to put a business plan together Mm -hmm. and I had to cost it against other and then benchmark against other hospitals. I was supposed to go and speak to all the theatre staff and get their approval. It was like, why is this so bloody hard? Yeah, this is actually saving money. If that's your your bottom line, which it often is as a financial or a risk and then it's risk assessment well the risk of um the baby being unwell is greater when it's separated from its mother immediately after birth so uh, and also when you're if you leave the baby somewhere that isn't being monitored with the partner uh if something happens do yeah. new partners who are probably exhausted at that point to say the least or on their phone does anyone recognize yeah or they're on their phone if the baby is mucousy or choking or which they're likely to be after a cesarean (laughs) exactly uh yeah that is uh it shouldn't be happening we shouldn't be separating them um it's just a cause for disaster to be honest um so yeah i mean the basics however these women should be given very good support to breastfeed. And that can often mean that you need to look at this woman as an individual and look at the baby as an individual in terms of positioning and attachment. And I do not adhere to the rule that there is one breastfeeding position for every baby. There is not. And there are different shapes and sizes of breasts and same with babies. And there are ergonomics and there is sometimes there is a bump. Mostly there is a bump left in the first few days. Also, sometimes you're sitting, sometimes you're not able to. So it's about looking ergonomically how this mum and baby can position and attach well on the breast. Yeah. The principles rather than a position. The principles. Yeah. The fundamentals. Um, However, if we're looking at the protocol, this is basically saying that everyone with and now with an early term baby as well, I'm really going to push the Mm. buttons here, should be expressing after every feed. And the reason for that is because these babies will go on and they will probably they might have a great feed one off maybe two or three over the day, over the 48 hours. But the rest of the feeds are highly likely to not be great. And the other thing is how many women are on a postnatal ward and get every single part of every single breastfeed observed by a highly skilled midwife or lactation consultant who's aware of the challenges with a late preterm infant? Probably very few. So also I have a problem with making exhausted women express after every feed. Of course I do, Mm. but it's about weighing up what's going on. If we are not stimulating those milk making cells, we're not stimulating that prolactin hormone and saying, hello, this baby's been born. What's going to happen is highly likely that she won't make enough milk. And then you're just in this cascade of like towards breastfeeding cessation pretty darn soon. And so it's recommended that for these babies, women are double pumping with a hospital grade pump to establish their milk supply in spite of the fact that the baby might not be breastfeeding very effectively. Also, what if they've gone home? If they've gone home, then this is also basically this process is not quick. 
So these babies might also need nipple shields to help them um, stay attached at the breast, not all. Again, it's an individual approach. They will likely need to be topped up. So this is the triple feeding. This is huge. It is not easy to feed a late preterm infant. What can be helpful and what is really, you know, we talked to Donna Geddes about is once the milk's come in to be doing pre and post weights with these infants, like on every feed, it's just not feasible. We don't have enough scales to send them home with every woman with one of these infants. But is that not going to make, I don't know, is that going to make the mother more anxious or is it a, or is it a case of acknowledging that this is actually not physiology this is a variation or a complication because this baby's not actually meant to be here yet so you're working with because this is part of the problem isn't it because when you look at these babies they look like a small term baby as we've said so then when you're starting to go oh well you know you need to do all these interventions blah 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 it whereas if you were looking at a 26 28 week baby go yes of course you need to be pumping milk you need to be weighing them you need to be doing all these interventions it just feels I'm just much. anticipating audience like, oh, you're doing all these things. Yeah. But what you're saying is, yes, because this is actually a variation that's not physiology, if you like. It's not- we are not in the norm. We're not in the range of normal no. here. These The physiology is going to be delayed because these babies cannot sustain themselves at the breast. So they can't stimulate the prolactin release effectively enough for long enough. So the breast just basically is not being suckled from. It doesn't have the stimulation to make the milk. And so you're going to get a delay in when the milk comes in potentially. And then you're actually going to get very low milk volumes by four weeks. And then if no one does any intervention, you're not going to be able to bring that up. The other problem is, is like I mentioned, the baby, they're at risk of hypoglycemia because they're utilizing all their brown fat reserves if they've got any to just keep warm. That's why also keep them in skin to skin contact 24 hours a day. So we need to give the babies extra food so that we don't have to use formula. So they, their brains need this extra glucose from the colostrum, from the milk. And then comes the problem of how do we deliver the the, the milk is classically with a bottle and, you know, you can just lie a baby on its back and sit it back and that milk's just going to flow in and it will just swallow because it has the ability to at that age. But really we should be using cup feeding or even supply line feeding to try and keep the baby at the breast. It's then got milk coming through and the baby keeps feeding at the breast. However, exactly your face says it all. This is a massive undertaking. And so I think The reason why I wanted to bring this up is not so much to be saying, you know, you need to do this and you're bloody awful if you don't. It's to be raising the point of how difficult this is because the complexity is the support is not there. The the actual protocol of establishing milk supply, making sure a baby's fed and then establishing breastfeeding or at breastfeeding is incredibly complex. I need to read a quote from a lovely paper that I will link to because it just sums it up so well. And this was looking at women's experiences of it. And there's not a lot of research done on this topic and that we need a lot more. They describe breastfeeding late preterm infants as as a complex, tenuous process in flux. It's a cascade of infant 
physiological issues and maternal reactions. Late preterm infant establishment of breastfeeding is not simple or straightforward. Often the spiral goes like this, and this is me quoting them. It's an emotional roller coaster involving brief periods of hope in which milk supply or at breastfeed seem to improve amidst a spiral of ineffective breastfeeding, formula supplementation, decreasing milk and more formula supplementation and insufficient time and energy to incorporate breastfeeding activities into daily life. Likewise, mothers who also eventually achieve successful breastfeeding experience multiple setbacks, including periods where the late preterm infant was supplemented with formula against their wishes and getting to breastfeeding took much longer than expected. Mm. It's really bloody difficult. And what women often talk about is that, you know, the biggest barriers for for establishment of breastfeeding with these babies is the perception of inadequate milk supply, understandably, breastfeeding difficulties and concerns that the breast milk alone did not satisfy their infants. Because if you've got a baby going to the breast and then they just kind of fall asleep or and then you put a bottle in their mouth and they lovely like gulp it all down, of course, you feel like, well, I'm not doing well. And mums report that, you know, the difficulties is this baby's got a small mouth. They tire easily. They feel like the baby's weak. They talk about how they constantly fall asleep at the breast. They don't take enough during a feed. And it's also difficult to tell when their baby has had enough milk. Mm. But of course, in that lack of ability to see what volume is going in, they're told that their baby doesn't suck well. Um, and mothers end up feeling exhausted and they talk about how this is so much work it's exhausting and it's frustrating and they also feel like they might not be supported in their choice to breastfeed because there's so many hoops to jump through um and a lot of them experience a lot of distress resulting from like lack of anticipatory guidance so the fact that the healthcare professional whether neonatal nurse neonatologist midwife home visiting midwife or health visitor isn't really that sure about, oh, should we be expressing as well? I mean, the feed I just saw was okay. I don't want to make her have to express all the time. It's so much work. But then you've got two weeks down the track, not gaining weight, gets a readmission. Then she expresses and she gets a small amount. And then they go, well, we're going to need formula. Actually, the baby's really bad at sucking now because they're so tired. We're going to put a nasogastric tube down. You've got this whole cascade and the distress of that when you just want to breastfeed and no one said to you this management process of kind of triple feeding is something if you're up for it that might need to go on for a month or two Mm. it's huge and it's seriously distressing and I suppose again I don't I mean I have answers but it's all well and good me saying, yes, express eight times a day, breastfeed, look for feeding cues, skin to skin, top up the baby with a supply line, drip some milk down, use a nipple shield, try different positions. That works for some women for some periods of time. But if you've got someone going back to work or their partner's gone or they're on their own, how is this attainable? And the distress of, you know, I've had so many 
people say to me, partners, grandmas, women over the years, I wish someone had told me that it would probably take five to six weeks to get this baby breastfeeding properly. I wish I had an end point because I think I would have been able to keep going till then. And the difference between women who are on their first baby or they've second, third, but they've had a breastfeeding experience when they discuss it with them is that the women who've had a baby before talk exactly in those terms. I know that sometimes you've just got to push through, but it comes to an end. I know that it will turn around and I know each week it's going to change because the baby changes and they grow and their mouth grows Mm -hmm. and their ability grows. So actually I can foresee the future. And if I get there, it's going to be really easy. I've just got to get over this quite major hill, but I can cope for six weeks. And that's the timeline I'm going to give myself. When you're a first time mom and you know nothing because we don't talk about it. And also you're getting so much conflicting information. uh, Is it any wonder that we have rapid, very quick cessation of breastfeeding? with these infants and more so than term and more so than more preterm infants. And there are lots of things we can do and suggest and help with, but you know, if you're, I think that's the thing. I mean, I've talked about triple feeding before and I am like, I know it works, but yet it's about making that plan with the individual woman and family supports Mm -hmm. while she's in front of you and working a feeding plan that's going to work for them. And that might be that this feeding plan is, you know, a star, everything's included and she can cope with that for the next four days. But actually her partner's going back to work and her mother-in-law is coming to stay for three weeks. That makes her entirely very stressed. And um, she's got no child kegs. It's suddenly summer holidays and the kids are off school and she's on her own. And she goes, do you know what? not going to be able to express this many times. Of course. So you're not going to give the same plan to everyone, even though it's in a guideline. As much as I'd love to, it's just not realistic. Like you're going to give someone a nervous breakdown. And, you know, if you're, if you think about it, if you're breastfeeding and you're trying to get this baby to latch, you know how frustrating it can be to try and get babies who just don't want to open their mouths or they're sleepy. So you've got to undress them, change a nappy, wake them up gently. We should not be doing cold, 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 cold cloths on babies anymore. Um, what? We should be trying when to wake that? them up gently. What? When were we doing cold cloths? Oh, babies? I've done cold cloths for years. And also, I read, and this is an American journal, they were using um, hair dryers on babies' feet to wake them up. I mean, I don't know if this goes on anyway, but they stopped the practice because of burns. Oh, my God. Yeah. I had an oh, my God moment when I read that. I was like, oh, okay. Sometimes people are just like, what? I think we just think that babies don't, um, I don't know, feel much. We used to, I mean, obviously we used to think that, but that's long and gone. Well, why would you go, I need to wake a baby up. I get a hairdryer. (laughs) The warm air would be quite like sleeping. I don't understand. But you're waking the baby up. So you've probably got 
15 minutes under your belt already. Then you're trying to attach the baby. You're working out your positioning. Then they might feed and then you might do some switch feeding, some breast compression. You then might introduce a nipple shield. You might even be putting a syringe full of some formula milk to try and get them feeding into the nipple shield on the nipple shield. You might be introducing the express breast milk with a supply line. You're probably an hour in. Then you're pumping for 15 minutes if you're double pumping, longer if you're single pumping. Then you're cleaning all the bloody equipment and you're trying to put your head down. So you're talking one and a half hours to two hours. And then we need to be feeding this baby every eight hours, um, every eight hours, eight times in 24 hours. I know it works. I know the physiological understanding. However, I suppose I'm also thinking about the mental capacity of a woman during this time point. That'd be bad enough if you, with sleep. Never mind without sleep and with a new baby and oh yeah, and it is imagine. practically really limited sleep. So I mean, I think it's like a big old star NB note before psychological overwhelm. The other thing is that some women experience a delayed bonding and connection to late preterm infants as a I'm result of this. Yeah, but it's because not just because of the separation, which is interesting, it's. They report it because of the decreased interaction and responsiveness during feeds. Mm. So because their baby is not really good at giving them eye contact and looking at them alert, they're just sort of asleep on the breast and their mouth doesn't really open very wide, perhaps. But it's this lack of interaction that women often feel I'm not connected to this baby yet and it takes much longer. So that really needs to be in the back of our heads as well when we're giving these plans out. And I think I'm glad that there's been some research about looking at the psychological impacts of women and sort of qualitative research, because it really was a dearth of, okay, these babies have these risk factors. We need to get milk in them. And like I said, think of the breast, think of the baby, think of the volume. However, we need to be thinking of the mother's mental health. The other thing I suppose I want to mention is if women have, you know, been able to get through, and this is often not first time mothers, so that they've breastfed before, they understand the concept of supply and demand, they take earlier measures to protect their milk supply. What often happens as well is, so I said around six to eight weeks, like things get get going like they start breastfeeding and you can probably stop all the other paraphernalia however that kind of sleepiness then reverts itself and you get these babies who are incredibly wakeful is that a real word wakeful (laughs) um and so (laughs) what happens is you find that these babies then want to feed really frequently and so then we get these anxieties and fears that oh my God, this baby's feeding too frequently. And probably what's happening is they're still transitioning, but they have the ability to be awake for a certain period, but they have, they only take so much milk. You know, a baby at six to eight weeks might be taking, well, I mean, it's a big guess, 60 to 120 mils in a feed. Maybe they're taking 40. They're still taking at the end of the day enough to gain weight and do really well but they just need to do it in 12 or 13 feeds maybe more rather than closer to 8 to 10 and so then the anxieties come through as well so it this is this is not a great episode because I don't have a standard answer the answer is 
get support. This really is a, this is, you know, women who have babies born in this age range ideally would be referred to someone who has specialist knowledge in breastfeeding and lactation, whether that's a lactation consultant or, or a midwife who has, who's more skilled. To me, that's not the point at all about these qualifications. Don't get me started. It's about your knowledge, how kind you are, how you can think about the mother and infant individually, how you can think of them as a dyad together, needing to be together, and how you can really bring in the fact that uh, maternal mental health is just as important on milk supply and what she needs and wants going forward. So I think for me, it is a case of that we should be getting guidelines for these infants on every postnatal ward. We should be looking at the ABM guideline, but we should also be really clear when we are training our midwives and our staff that this is a guideline and we need to look at the psychological aspects of that family and the dynamics and the stressors and what else is going on in their family and how we can navigate that through this really complex month or two of getting to the point of hopefully exclusive breastfeeding but maybe it is exclusive pumping or maybe it's a mixture of the two. It is never black or white with breastfeeding, but it's getting to the point where this mother feels happy with the outcome. I don't think that's always going to be possible, but it's about giving her the support so that she has the, the space to talk through that and have the, the contacts that she's not just being seen every week, ideally, you know, every three, four days. We need to check in at least. So it's not really happy to end on, is it? Well, that's the truth. I think that's part of it, isn't it? That actually, if women not understand the why, that it's you know, it's not them. It's the situation, the physiology, and the the baby needs that additional support. And then, yeah, it's just supporting women to do the hard work. Yeah, and it is hard work, mm. and we don't have systems set up to support that in a lot of countries. We look at maternity leave. Yeah. Postnatal support should be taking casseroles around and um, supporting this hard work that needs to go on, not taking the baby out for walks or bringing big bouquets of flowers. They're lovely, but actually three dinners in the freezer is going to help get breastfeeding established way more. Yep. Do you want to wrap us up? Yep. Wrap us up like a burrito. <laughs> okay, I don't need you to wrap us up then. We will wrap up. I think that's a good place to end um, for today's talk. So thank you from me, Katie James, and my co-host. Rachel Reed. See, I was ready for that. Well done. Only a, only a short delay. <laughs> <laughs> hope you found a few golden nuggety nuggets in the show today please don't press pause but instead scroll on down on your podcast app yep that's it down there and pop a review and maybe a few stars to make our eyes twinkle with glee for more on breastfeeding and lactation content head on over to my website where my course is 
And for courses and books from Rachel, you can find everything in the links below. So all I got to say now is see you next time. And I can't wait. So here's the bloopers. And therefore, because they don't have such a deep sleep, read a fed the cat. Sorry, he was just about to feed Floki again, then he would have vomited. I'm leaving that in. <laughs> so he pretends he's not, he pretends he's still starving, and then he gets what fed twice, and then he barfs it, and then the dog eats the barf. So not, not... <laughs> At least you don't have to clean it up. <laughs> Great. Brilliant. Thanks. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> to the late pre-termers I don't care anymore I've got the washing machine from the neighbours in the background if you can hear it I just I, there's nothing I can do about it it's just started wonderful I'm in sweltering heat and I have no fan and I've literally got a cold cup of water between my thighs and a cold pack behind my back to keep me cool so so basically these late pre-termers they have difficulty achieving a deep sleep Wondering which of my courses is for you? Breastfeeding and lactation, the fundamentals has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs. This course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning, case studies and some pretty tough at times quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks. It also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A. This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? Currently, around 80 to 96% of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just eight weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to. Learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term. I believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long. Knowledge is power. That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum. Totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers. Music.